0: Avrilo Princip. He hated the monarchy. He hated a guy specifically named Archduke Ferdinand. He thought, in his own decision-making, that if I kill Archduke Ferdinand, then I will be seen as a national hero. I will be seen as a symbol of somebody who, will, who has gotten rid of tyranny. And so on June 28th, 1914. As many of you know, he shot Archduke Ferdinand. Because of that shot, one year later, World War I started and 10 million men were dead. In the business world, Blockbuster had the opportunity, but they failed to buy Netflix. In the business world, Yahoo had an opportunity to buy Google for $1 million, and they declined. A few years later, They offered Google $3 million, Google wanted five, and again, they declined. On the opposite end for Yahoo, Microsoft offers to buy Yahoo for $40 billion, $40 billion. They said that's not enough, and a few years later, they sell to Verizon for basically a tenth of that, $4 billion. Bad leadership decision. In 1846, there were 90 pioneers who decided... In their decision-making, they would go from Illinois to California, and they were going to take a shortcut. This shortcut was going to go through the Sierra Nevada mountains in the wintertime. And as they tried to go through the Sierra Nevada uh, mountains in the wintertime, they realized they got stuck. They all cannibalized each other. Another poor leadership decision, and you know them as the Donner Party. And then finally, one of the worst leadership decisions supposedly was by a man named Ronald Wayne. Ronald Wayne was a co-founder of Apple with Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak in 1976. And he decided in 1976, 12 days after the company was formed, I want out. I think this is some sort of fad. So he sold his 10% interest in Apple for $800, which is now worth $80. Or over $80 billion today. Leadership is often an um, ambiguous and unclear term. And if you attempt to take the world's definition of what leadership is, you will get a bunch of phrases like, and I, I looked this up people don't know how much you know until they know how much you care. Leaders empower others. A leader is one who knows where he wants to go, gets up and goes, right? Some of these weird, pithy phrases. As I mentioned before, probably a few sermons ago, the Harvard Continuing Education Department identified over 15,000. 15,000 of either books or articles on leadership. How are you going to get any type of clarity when you have over 15,000 articles and 15,000 books on leadership? You simply can't. But thankfully, we have the Bible. And thankfully, God gives us the exact gold standard of what he wants to see in all of his leaders. We don't have to guess. We don't have to have these 15,000 uh, 15, books or articles. We know exactly what he wants. He gives us these standards so that they are qualifications for elders. But he also does it so that these elders can model the example that he wants all of us, the sheep, his people to follow. These characteristics are outlined in Titus 1 verses 1 through 9. And we initially looked at, and I'll just go through these really quick, we initially looked at three relationship requirements. Three relationship requirements I talked about. The first was you had to just have a good reputation both inside and and outside the church. It was the word above reproach. He also had to be a good spouse, and he also had to be a good parent, an excellent parent. And then we looked at five easy, what I call easy, quote-unquote, leadership characteristics. And why I called these easy leadership characteristics was because God lists out five things, five vices, that we just don't simply abstain from doing. He says, here they are, don't do them. And why I say they're easy is because I think it's easier not to do something. Right? So he says these five things. Do not be selfish. Do not be bitter. Do not be drunk. Do not be violent. And do not be greedy. So in contrast to that, a sermon or two ago as well, I then started what I believed, and I quote, unquote, called the hardest biblical characteristics of leadership. And why I called these the hardest or difficult characteristics of leadership was that because they required us to actually exert effort, right? They required us to spend time with people. They required us to actually talk with people, to spend money on people, to spend time with people. And for a lot of us, this can be really difficult, It's really exhausting for us. I get uncomfortable. I don't want to do this. And in a world where I identified, where we have phones and we have TVs and we have so many distractions that make us feel like we think we're doing something with somebody, we really aren't. And so this is why I quote-unquote call these the hardest biblical uh, leadership characteristics. They were to be welcoming. That was to be hospitable, to be virtuous, and to be prudent. Well, finally, we are coming to an end of our uh, study on characteristics. There are four more that I will list. And let's find out the remaining four in Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9. Turn with me as I read along. Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9. Our focus will be on verses 8 through 9. But uh, I would like to give you the entire context, okay? New American Standard Version, Titus 1, verses 5 through 9. For this reason, I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you, namely, and here's the three relationship requirements, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. For the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, and here are those easy characteristics, Not self willed, not quick tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain. And here we get into verse 8, the hardest characteristics. But hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self controlled, holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching. So that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. And I've said this before, that these characteristics, of course, are the qualifications for leaders. But they are also for all of us to mimic, for the body to mimic. So let's get into these four more difficult leadership characteristics. And the first is just to be fair. Be fair. And where we get this is from the one word in verse 8 that says, just. J-U-S-T. In the Greek, and why I'm telling you this is because I'm going to mention it quite a bit, in the Greek, the word is dikaios. Dikaios. It also can refer to righteousness. It can refer to justice. And it can refer to being upright. He's the person who conforms to the standard or to the will of God. He's the annoying guy or girl who always knows how to do the right thing. We know that they're not always going to do this perfectly, but they're going to do it habitually, ideally because they always want to follow the Lord. Now, God is identified as dikaios, just, in many different portions of the Bible, and I'll give you a few here. When Jesus addresses his own Father in heaven, he says righteous, dikaios, Father, in John seventeen twenty-five. Paul spoke of God as just, dikaios, as the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus, Romans 3.26. John gives us a divine promise that if we confess our sins, and most of you know this, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, dikaios, to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's out of 1 John 1 verse 9. We all have this sense of justice. We all have this sense of righteousness, and I'll give you an example how. At the end of World War II, let's say Adolf Hitler doesn't kill himself. We find him in a bunker somewhere, we take him over to the international courts, and we try him. The judge gets up there, he takes nine hours to read all of the charges against Adolf Hitler and how he's killed these people, how he's screwed humanity, how he's ruined civilizations. If that judge got up there and he says to Adolf Hitler, I've seen what you've done. Millions of people have been murdered. But I think that you've learned your lesson. I think you feel bad for what you've done. And he bangs his gavel and he says, not guilty. I'm going to let you go. All of us, I hope, would be appalled. We would be angered. We would be upset. And why is that? Because in all of our hearts, out of Genesis one twenty-seven, we are all made in the image of God. And God's image and God's spirit requires we know that evil is wrong. Evil needs to be punished. We have a heart of morality. We have a moral code. And that's how you also know we're not born of some sort of scum or some pond or we're blown up in some sort of... Um, explosion from billions and billions of years ago. Because if you were, then you wouldn't have any type of moral code. You wouldn't have any type of difference of right and wrong. We inherit this sense of justice from our own creator. Now, as you get to the pearly gates of heaven at the end of your life, you want to know how does God actually call you yourself righteous or justice? Because he actually does identify dikaios, some people in the Bible, as also being just or righteous, and I'll give you an example. The first time dikaios is used in the New Testament, it's in Matthew. And here, Matthew refers to Mary's husband, Joseph, as being a righteous, a dikaios man and not wanting to disgrace her. He, desire, he desired to put her away secretly, and why was he Righteous because of the conduct that he exhibited. He was a good man trying to do right. Luke describes Zacharias and Elizabeth, John the Baptist's parents, both as righteous, dikaios in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. Why were they called this? Because they were doing the right things related to God. They had the right relationship with God. They chose not to sin. Noah, Daniel, Job, all described by God, to, be, to have righteousness because their lives were often filled with choices to put, God's, put God first. Now, in these things, we know that the Bible gives a definition of righteousness and justice, but I think that our perception of what's right, of what's just, is often skewed by what we see in the court system because in the court system, we typically expect justice and rightly so, we want righteousness. We expect righteousness to be done. You have a judge who's supposed to be uh, unbiased. You have a, attorneys advocating for both sides, and typically juries get it right. Many of you know that this is the field that I work in. And I'll give you an example here. When you're driving and a cop stops you, or I should say Keith stops you, and you're driving under the influence of alcohol, or he sees you driving under the influence of alcohol, this is called a DUI, driving, uh, right, driving under the influence of alcohol. So typically, if you drink and you drive and you have a blood alcohol level of 0.08%, which is around the legal limit, for those of you who don't know, it's two to four beers, depending on your tolerancy. Justice, or the law, requires that you get two days in jail, you get one or two years on probation, you, get, you have to pay fines, and usually your license is suspended until you take a DMV course. This is what we call justice. But I put yourself, put yourself in my shoes. Sometimes justice has to be flexible. It has to be moved, and I'll tell you how. What if, Keith stops you, and your blood alcohol level now is not at a .08, but it's double, at a .16? What if it's triple? At a .24, I've also seen as high as .40, raging alcoholics, okay? But what if it's at a point double, triple? Does justice require that we give more days, 10, 20? Does justice require that if he has a family or she has a family, that maybe we should just give community service instead? Or maybe we should just give a higher fine? Should we give him a discount on the number of days if the machine that was used to test that .08% was actually not working correctly. It was a little off, but it was not working correctly. Should we throw out this case if the cop who stopped you did it illegally? In my work, I have to come up with what's reasonable or just. And I know with a DUI, oftentimes, it sounds a little bit more complicated because this is a low-level crime. Some people like to tell me, oh, well, that doesn't apply for murder because murder, we know, is wrong. Now, murder, we know exactly what justice requires. Well, recently, a mur- murder trial made the news in our very own San Mateo County. A conflict be- between a man named Rafa Landetta was he was recently convicted of killing his ex-girlfriend, his mother of his 18-year-old child. And in one of the most gruesome, ugly, weird type of ways, he kills her with a samurai sword. Okay, a samurai sword. We're not in Japan in 1860. He kills her with a samurai sword. And when we talk about dikaios, when we talk about justice, the judge sentenced him recently to 26 years to life in prison. Why did I mention that? Because the family was appalled at that sentence. They got on the news. They were upset. They were angry. They said, this is not right. This is not justice. And so as you put yourself in that position, should we have given more or less time because he used a sword? Should maybe we give more or less time because he took a couple of slashes? Maybe we should give a discount because he may have suffered from mental illness, or maybe since he was a little boy, he was, himself was maybe beaten with a sword or something else. I think all of us can agree that 26 years to life, there's some flexibility in that, but all of us can agree that this is imperfect, This is in our impression of where we stand usually in this world, our impression of what we think fairness is. It's often difficult, it's messy, it can be messed up, but we'll do the best that we can. But why I mention these two examples is because this is not even close. Not even close to the perfect justice and the perfect righteousness that we all get to experience through our father who is a just father in heaven elders are expected to exercise this type of justness they're expected to be fair just and righteous not favor the rich not favor the popular not disfavor the unpopular because they actually have a standard to work on and that's the bible and of course I would be remiss to not say that we get to experience this perfect justice every day with an understanding of what the work of the cross does for us. Every day we are sinful. We deserve death. We deserve destruction. We deserve hell. We don't get to deserve the beautiful sun out here. We don't get to deserve the many meals of different flavors. We don't get to enjoy our own kids' Being doing well, playing basketball. We don't get to, we're not entitled to those things because justice requires that sin, sin demands a penalty and we deserve hell. But as I tell all of our youth group, all of our kids, as I mentioned to them a couple of lessons ago, the most important thing that I could ever tell you in life, this is the most important thing that I could tell you in life, is that Jesus substituted himself in some beautiful but very undeserved plan, substituted himself on the cross so that God's justice could be satisfied. Jesus stood on the, was crucified on the cross so that he could be in our place for that sin. And because of that, God's justice doesn't go away. It's satisfied, but it's satisfied through his son. And we get to experience that as a body of believers. And so as a reflection of that, elders need to be able to understand that and practice that sense of justice. We all get to do that. Well, he expects being just from his leaders and from all of you, elders are expected to be fair, but they're also expected to be committed To be committed. And we get this from the word devout again in verse 8. We'll be in verse 8 for the next couple points, okay? So, to be devout is to be firmly committed to God and His Word. It's to be separate unto God, to be pleasing to God, despite the changing circumstances of this world, despite everything that we hear in the news. Nothing changes because He is devout to God. The elder or pastor must be devout also in every area of his life. As a Christian, we're supposed to be devout. And so as someone comes up to you and you identify yourself as a Christian, when you say, I'm devoted, or they ask you, what are you devoted to? What do you say? Not many people I know ask you, what are you devoted to? It's usually in the form of, what's your passion? Or what do you love doing? What's your hobby? Things like that. And so this is a good time to bring it up. But what is it? What's the answer? The chief commitment of our lives should be to, and you know this, Matthew 27 to th- uh, 37 to 38. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment. And as I say this to you, this is extreme. This is a dramatic call for the entire sacrifice of your life. So, those who do not follow Jesus wholeheartedly, not in a devoted way, you're devoting yourself to something else. If you are not following him completely, you are not a Christian. We are warned in Matthew 6 24 that we cannot serve two masters. There is no halfway. Either a person is devoted to God or not. And I want you to turn with me to 1 Kings 8, 55-61. Turn with me in the Old Testament to 1 Kings 8, 55-61. I know it's a little bit of a longer passage, but the reason that I wanted you to turn with me, because I do think it's a beautiful way in which King Solomon... When he dedicates his temple, he's now challenging the people of Israel to be devout. And so if you are wondering, how do I be devout? You can see how he acknowledges God in the past. You can see how he acknowledges God in the present. You can see how then he looks forward to God in the future. This is being devoted to something. 1 Kings eight fifty-five through 61 Please read along with me. And he stood and blessed all the assembly of Israel with a loud voice saying, Blessed be the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel. According to all that he promised, not one word has failed of all his good promise. Which he promised through Moses' servant. Verse 57. May the Lord our God be with us as he was with our fathers, may he not leave us or forsake us. That he may incline our hearts to himself, and here's one of the kickers, to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments and his statutes and his ordinances, which he commanded our fathers. And may these words of mine, which I have made supplication before the Lord, be nearer to the Lord our God day and night, that he may maintain the cause of his servant and the cause of his people Israel as each day requires, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God. I love just this small phrase. There is no one else. Let your heart, therefore, be wholly devoted to the Lord our God to walk in his statutes and to keep his commandments. The essence of devotion is obedience. Obedience. Many people are devout, uh, devoted to different things in the world. Politics, usually the environment. A familiar one is sports teams, Super Bowl winners, or I should say almost Super Bowl winners, had it not been for some bad play calling. You know every player, every play, every trade. You make an effort to watch every single game. You watch the clips over and over of how the Niners should have gone for it on fourth down, especially in overtime, and complain how Kyle Shanahan was not aggressive enough. And what was he thinking when he allowed Patrick Mahomes to have it in the last quarter? Some people are devoted to these things, and I am not. Anymore. (laughs) But this is the kind of devotion that we need. Devotion to God. We are also to have a devotion to fellow believers. Be devoted to one another in love. That's out of Romans 12.10. The early church is also described as being devoted to four important things. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and of course, to prayer. And that's out of Acts 2.42. We are supposed to be dedicated to... And devoted to prayer. Now, I think I mentioned this before, but the Bible tells us to pray without ceasing. We know that out of Thessalonians. And we know I don't think that literally means we're just praying 24 7 all the time, but it is a continual attitude that we want to have with the Lord. It's to never stop. I know that, and I, I love just taking this glimpse out, but as Jesus goes up to the cross and he's be, pr- being prepared to be crucified, notice that as God, as Jesus, Look at the example that Jesus sets as being devoted to prayer. How many times does he pray? How many times does he say, I need to communicate with God? Listen here. Matthew 26, he does it at the Lord's Supper. Luke 22, he prays for Peter's faith when Satan asks to sift him. John 17, he prayed for himself, the disciples, and all the believers just before heading to Gethsemane. Matthew 26, in Gethsemane before his betrayal, he prays then again three separate prayers. Luke 23, at the cross, Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Of course, at the cross in Matthew 27, Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? As his last breath, at his last breath, Jesus prays, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And as he, ro- as he rose in Luke 24, he praised a blessing on the bread before he ate it with others at his resurrection. His devotion was that he had to be with the Father. I want to be with the Father. I want to align my will with him. He obviously was taking comfort in being with God the Father. And so I ask you that question as you devote yourselves to prayer. Do you have this sentiment? Are you also devoted to Christ in the same way that God himself set the example for us in just this one traumatic experience? Are we devoted to Christ in that same way? Every true, true Christian is devout, and I don't believe Well, I don't believe this is why, I mean, this is why it's very clear that we count the cost if we decide if we are going to follow God completely. This isn't done out of obligation or anything like that. And even in Revelation 3, 15 through 16, he identifies that he will spit out lukewarm churchgoers. Those who are neither hot or cold. Those people who only want to dabble in church. You know, you you hear Pastor Roger all the time talk about true biblical fellowship. True biblical fellowship is not coming into church and leaving. True biblical fellowship is not going into church and not wanting to talk to anybody because I'm uncomfortable. It's not wanting to be held accountable. It's not wanting to be heard by the elders. It's not wanting to be encouraged by the elders. It's not wanting to be open about things with other members or other believers. I know it's hard. And that's why I call it one of the hardest characteristics, right? It's hard. It's uncomfortable. But we do these things because we understand when we count the cost that we are devoting ourselves and our lives for the sake of Christ. This should be modeled by our elders, this should be that they should be committed. But in addition to that, they should also be disciplined. Be disciplined. And we get this again from verse 8, the word self-controlled. Self-controlled. The self-controlled leader or elder walks with God in the integrity of his heart. He has the continuing grace of God working in his life to agree that he is spiritually mature. It's constantly working. And so there is an understanding that if there is some sort of sin, if there's an issue, if there's something going on in his life, he should be trying to pry those things out all the time he's disciplined in those things. He has self-control in those things. And if he doesn't, he's doing anything he can to make sure he gets in control of those things. Walter Mitchell was an Ivy League professor known for his experiments in self-control. And he's often called the marshmallow man. He designed an experiment about 50 years ago where he told five-year-old kids that if you, uh, he put a marshmallow in front of them. So this is tough, Right? He put a marshmallow in front of five-year-old kids, and he says, if you wait 15 minutes and you don't take that marshmallow, I'm going to promise you a second marshmallow. Okay? So the experiment was to be who is going to be under self-control. And what he found, that the preschoolers, the ones who were able to wait the longest, the ones who had self-control, supposedly went on to have higher SAT scores than the ones who couldn't wait, Years later, they had better body mass index scores, they earned more advanced degrees, they used less cocaine, I don't like cocaine, and then cope better with stress. <laughs> that's, why, that's how you know it was uh, 50 years ago, right? Many people have interpreted the results of this to mean that self-control is basically something that you're born with. It's not something that you can control. Ironically, in all of that, the professor actually says the opposite is true. The most important thing, and this is what he says, that he learned is that self-control and the ability to regulate one's own emotions involves a set of skills that can be taught and can be learned. He says that people who perform the best often use creative strategies to avoid temptation. Like instead of thinking that the marshmallow is there and it's yummy, they may think it's not there. Or they may think that the marshmallow is uh, a rock or something like that. But why this is important to us is because biblically we know that. We know that biblically we can control things with the help of the Spirit. And why it's so much more, I would say why it's deeper, why it's so much more depth for us as Christians is that we don't just stop at a marshmallow not not being there. Or we don't just stop at a marshmallow being a rock. We try to get into the heart of the matter. We know that there are two components. If there's something that's tempting you to do something, and then you need some power to stop you from doing it. If you just try to do it on your own, you think, okay, I have enough strength for at least this one minute to, I don't know, stop sleeping in or saving, up for, saving money instead of impulsively buying something. If you do this for yourself for one time, you do it yourself for two times, I have enough energy to do it, all the glory goes to you. But biblically, we understand that this can go deeper. We ask ourselves the question, why is it that I continue either want to sin? Why do I lust after these things? Why do I desire things that I don't have? Why do I get angry at people? We look inside because we understand that the depth, that the deepest part of us that controls self-control is the heart. Self-control is often paired with sober-mindedness, sober-mindedness and I get this from 1 Timothy 3.2 and Titus 1.8. But it goes to change in the heart. Then it goes up to your mind. And then from there, then it leads into self-control of your actions. Now, I know sometimes we do these things impulsively, but it still comes from your heart. There are many places in the Bible that do talk about self-control. 1 Corinthians 9, to discipline your bodies, to keep it under control. Slaves, uh, not being slaves to wine, Titus 2, verses 3 through 5. And there's many places that use this word self-control in the context of usually sexual overtones. Paul instructs Christians to abstain from sexual immorality, not giving in to their own passions and lusts. You guys know this. 1 Corinthians 7 presumes that there's a lack of self-control in a married couple if they are not having intercourse or if they're not having sex for a period of time. God has given some the calling of singleness and with it having a desire to have... The having a desire under control. Others burn with passion, and so he instructs them to marry. Again, not having that control. And so I was just trying to think of some of the areas that we may struggle with self-control. I identified a few, but I'll mention a few more just so that we can be applicable to how we can understand to better apply this. Um, walking away from a heated argument and not yelling in response, not getting mad at someone, not holding a grudge and forgiving them quickly, screen time limitations, not gossiping, avoiding impulsive shopping, listening rather than interrupting someone. I know that's a big temptation for me. Keeping calm in traffic, social media limitations, soda over water, reading instead of TV, reading your Bible instead of TV, procrastinating and even going to bed early. We don't want to just simply trick ourselves into doing what's right. We want God to get the glory. And I'll give you the steps exactly how to do that. We memorize verses. We sing. We pray through these things. So even if you have an issue with anger at somebody, you don't just say, okay, I'm just going to pray about it and that's all. That's good. We learn to say no, but we understand from the depths of our heart that I am deprived, that in my anger, I have the opportunity to choose somebody out so bad. That we could send them into deep depression. You acknowledge that in your despair and in your inadequacy, I have no ability to be able to be nice to somebody. But we pray for Jesus's help in that. And with all of each other's help, we secure accountability for one another. Hey, help me. Help me, brother. Help me, sister, in this area when I get mad at somebody. We understand now then that God promises to supply us the power to be able to not be angry to do every good work. And then how do we celebrate that? We act in faith knowing that God will work in us. We celebrate it by thanking him when we in fact are able to be kind. When we don't just not be angry, but instead we're able to encourage and love one another instead. This is is an example of when we have self-control and not just from a superficial worldly perspective, but from a biblical heartfelt perspective. The Greek word here describes, is described nowhere else in the New Testament, but it's basically describing the elder or the overseer. And remember, I use those interchangeably. They could also be used pastor. But the elder's ability to control his own desires and appetites, he is required to be temperate in all things. It is certainly easier said than done. I understand that, but it's areas where we have to reflect and grow upon so elders are instructed to be fair. They're expected to be committed, to be disciplined, and finally, to be principled. To be principled. And we get this from, finally, verse 9, holding fast, the faithful word, both. in summary, to both exhort and to refute. So the phrase holding fast is taken from a single Greek word that means to hold firmly, to hold tightly, pretty obvious there. Holding fast to the Lord means loving him with our whole being, to be diligent, constantly obeying him, constantly serving him with our entire heart and our soul. The, first, the term first appears in Deuteronomy 10, 20, where it says, Fear the Lord your God and serve him. Hold fast to him and take your oaths in his name. Holding fast has this idea of being uh, of, of being persevering, of something that continues to strive hard in the Christian walk. Because Paul identifies also believers as do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent. Fast forward, holding fast to the word of life. Now, it's attached to two other words, faithful and word. So just to be clear, we're holding fast to the word, meaning it's trusted and reliable. It's, faithful, it's faithfully God's word given by the Holy Spirit. Out of all the qualifications that I have described here and that you see here, most, I mean, or all of them, other than this qualification, describe what an elder is supposed to be. It describes his internal character of who he's supposed to be. But this is the one instruction that deals with what an elder is supposed to do. He talks about, and this is emphasized both in Timothy and Titus, but he talks about the importance of the elder and the overseer to basically preach and teach and guard God's truth. A quick definition is that preaching and teaching are often alike. Sometimes people like to define preaching as the public proclamation of truth intended primarily to move the will of the hearers to respond obviously like we're doing here. Teaching sometimes is directed more at causing the mind to understand. You'll get that maybe in your Bible studies. You'll get that also in your small groups. But often preaching involves admonition, exhortation, where teaching involves illumination and explanation. Often the two functions, they overlap. And so all good preaching has some sort of explanation, I hope, right? And all good teaching has some sort of either encouragement or exhortation or something for you to respond to. And so when we hold these things firmly, God instructs us uh, with this passage that we do two things with them. The first is we can encourage one another. When you know doctrine, when you are taught doctrine, it helps you to not only be, I believe, excited for the word, but also to be able to share it with other people. Larry comes up to me, almost every other and tells me exactly what you're encouraged about reading when you see God's uh, sunlight every morning. I love that. But the Trinity, creation, justification, sanctification, the gospel, all of these things are encouragements to you as you continue to learn and to teach uh, from an understanding of either Bible study or coming to church. But we're also supposed to use these things so that we can defend the faith. We can defend doctrine. And that's why it's so important that we come all the time so that we understand when people have issues of tongues, of faith and works, free will, tithing, God's will, dispensationalism, gender roles, we can have a biblical perspective on life, and we can be able not just to argue with somebody, but hopefully explain to them what the Bible says, that the Bible is clear, and hopefully win people over to Christ knowing that God is not ambiguous in these things. He's clear. This is true for all of us. I know that all of you know that when you teach something, uh, you learn it 10 times better than anybody who might listen to it right? You you definitely do that. And I know that all of us may not be teachers. All of us may not be preachers. But at the end of the day, if you take the mindset that you want to be able to teach something or explain something to somebody, then you'll be able to do it well. I love this passage from Mortimer Adler's book, How to Read a Book. And why I want to just read this really quick is because when you are reading the Bible or you're going through the lesson in Bible study or a small group, or you're just even hearing me, I want you to be able to engage in this way because I think that this will be able to help help you in your teaching and understanding of the word. Reading a book should be a conversation between you and the author. Presumably he knows more about the subject than you do. If not, you probably should not be bothering with this book. But understanding is a two-way operation. The learner has to question himself and question the teacher. Once he understands what the teacher is saying, marking a book is literally an expression of your differences or your agreements with the author. It's the highest respect that you can pay him. Engage yourselves, even if you're not a teacher or preacher of the word. Engage yourselves with the teaching of God's word, whether you read it, whether you hear it, or whether you're teaching it. When you do these things, I know that God's work will work in you well, and you will be able to be excited and enthusiastic for his word. We know that preaching and teaching of scripture is a spiritual gift, and so elders are supposed to have a spiritual gift to do these things. However, that doesn't preclude you from obviously learning God's word well. Elders are expected to be fair, to be committed, to be disciplined, and to be principled. At the beginning of this, I listed a list of, of foolish leadership decisions. But here are some amazing ones. Nelson Mandela, at 18 years old, fought for civil rights, and I know most of you know, for over 20 years. And he was sent to prison for 27 years in an attempt to resist apartheid. Absolutely incredible. He led, his efforts led to the end of apartheid in South Africa. He, was eventually, he eventually became president and then won a Nobel Peace Prize. Apple fired Steve Jobs. And in good leadership form, they brought him back, which he calls resulted in the best work of his life. And of course, being one of the most, or the biggest public company in the world. On August 28th, 1963, Martin Luther King Jr. approached the podium near the Lincoln Memorial, and he brought something that he usually doesn't bring, because he's such a good orator. He brought notes. And as he was going through his notes, he realized something wasn't right. And so one of the singers who was there, Malia Jackson, shouted, tell them about the dream, Martin. Tell them about the dream. So Dr. King paused, looks over the crowd, went off script saying, I say to you today, my friends, even though we face the difficulties of today and tomorrow, I still have a dream, leading to one of the most notable speeches in, church, uh, in American history. I won't say church history. And finally, I'll identify Stanislav Petrov. He, he's not a name that most of you are familiar with, but without him, we may not have no households. He was a lieutenant in the Soviet Union. In September of 1983, his computers showed that there were five missiles that were fired from the U.S., over to the Soviet Union, heading towards his country. He could have immediately reported the missiles, which likely would have resulted in an all-out nuclear war, but he didn't report that. In his leadership, something he knew that something wasn't right. Why would Americans only send five missiles? He checked the computer and confirmed that it was a malfunction, And NPR calls this action one of the closest instances of nuclear exchange between the U.S. and the Soviet Union. This was prevented by a single man trusting his gun. Good or bad decisions in leadership from a worldly sense can sometimes result in spite of or be a result of good or bad leadership characteristics. But behind all of these outcomes is a sovereign God who is in charge of everything. And so when we know the God who is in charge of everything, when we know that he controls the depths of the universe and each of the individual pages of time and history, then when he identifies characteristics that his people, his elders, need to have, we listen. Listen. While it's good to learn from the mistakes of all of these other people, we're thankful that we have God to look to in giving us this guidance. Serving as an elder in a local church is an immense privilege. It's an immense responsibility. I know sometimes that the task seems daunting. I can speak for myself, and I'm sure Pastor Roger feels that way. Sometimes it feels impossible, as it should, so we can rely on the work of the Holy Spirit. But it is worthy of these characteristics, because we are dealing with blood bought people. We are dealing with eternity. We are dealing with people's souls. At the end of this life, Pastor Roger, myself, any of the elders will have to give an account at the pearly gates of what we did for you. You ask the question Pastor, will you answer to God, how did you handle the flock? Did you teach the truth? Did you call out sin? Did you love the sheep? Did you pray for them? Did you help them as they stumble? Why I share that is, as we are kept accountable for that, you too will be kept accountable for your own actions and how you reflect yourselves in each of these qualities of leadership. At the end, with the accountability, I have good news that there's also an eternal promise as well. There's a promise of a crown to be gained. There's a promise of a crown of unfading glory. And there's double honor even to elders. But I also share with you that as you continue to reflect on your own life, there will be an accountability for your own actions as well. Focus on these characteristics. Focus them knowing that the Lord will empower all of us to be able to a church that is stronger and better and we will lead one another to love each other more and more. Let's pray. Father God, we are humbled just that in your own perfect plan that you would spell out exactly what it is that we need to be able to honor you in leadership. Help us, God, in the quietness of our heart to be able to reflect upon where we have those deficiencies. Lord, there's just so many characteristics. And sometimes it seems so difficult and impossible. Sometimes it feels like we become stagnant with these things or we take a step back. But help us, Lord, with your spirit to be able to enjoy these things more and more each day. Help us to reflect upon a life in which we can adopt these characteristics with whatever field that we are in and be the leader that you have called us to be. In our works, in our homes, in our activities, in the people that we talk to, help us to make the difficult decisions to be able to strive towards you in each of these characteristics. Teach us, Lord, how to be devoted, how to be committed, how to be principled, how to be self-controlled. We know that in these things, there's a glory in heaven waiting for us. We pray, Lord, that we be able to do these things faithfully and that we are excited to hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.